Welcome to a post-U.S. Open episode of No Challenges Remaining. I am Ben Rothenberg, and joining me from her beloved Northern California is my dear friend and co-host, Courtney Nguyen. Hi, Courtney. Hello, Ben. Welcome welcome home, I guess. You, you've been uh, in New York for quite a long time covering the Open. I, I have to admit that I was very jealous. Oh. I wish I was there this year. It, it, was pretty, it was fun. It was, it was a good tournament. I mean, New York can be an exhausting place to be for... Gosh, how long was I there? Like eighteen days, but yeah, but it's uh, but it's fun. And actually, I was staying in Queens, so it was just a long ride on the seven train every day, basically for me. But uh, long ride. That's a slow train. It's a very, very slow train. Makes a lot of stops that nobody needs. <laughs> that's just that's just my opinion as someone who doesn't you know ever get off at you know seventy seventh Street or whatever. Fair point. Fair point. Yeah. No, it's uh, you know, I think that um, most people can who have done the open uh, both as fan and as press um, mm-hmm. and the players as well, when you speak to them, I mean, there is kind of this sense of just kind of how exhausting that whole tournament is for everyone involved. I don't know. It can be crippling. It can be tremendously rewarding, obviously. Um, you know, it, it can create a, a great, you, you usually end up with, with quite a great tournament with, with some solid matches, especially towards the business end of the tournament. But man, that thing is a grind. It is. I mean, players generally stay at one of the hotels in Manhattan, which are near the shuttles, so they get a direct bus to take them to and from, but that takes like, you know, over half an hour, I think, each way. Yeah, and it's, a, and it's a hard, I mean, I've been on that bus because I've stayed at the hotels that are in Midtown as well, so that I could yeah. take that instead of the train, and like the buses are on a very rigid schedule. I heard from, I think, one of our friends, Alex Willis, um, mm-hmm. who works uh, for Wimbledon, who said that um, this year they were letting fans use the bus shuttles as well. Which Yeah, they yeah, were. Which is typically only for players and media. Um, and that, I have to believe, was a complete cluster. That, that, yeah. and, and, you, and I don't know, to me... It, like, wasn't, it wasn't all fans. It was certain fans with like special tickets for, like on like Grand Slam tennis tours or something. I don't right. know. But here's the thing. I mean, you and I were both in Cincinnati, Ben, and yep. we're both talking quite a bit about this. I mean, it's funny kind of to think that like three or four years ago, I was on the other side of the velvet rope or, or whatever and, and was a fan and, and stuff. But like, I get really nervous now whenever I see fans interacting with players, like in unauthorized zones where I feel like yeah. the players should be able to kind of let down their guard and, you know, whatever. And I feel like, I don't know what the rationale was in letting, I don't care how much money you paid, letting fans go onto the bus along with players. Um, yeah. Well, I had I had that one thing that happened in Cincinnati where I was there, um, which I think was after the men's semis, I want to say, or maybe even after the final. Um, there was this one bathroom on the third floor of the uh, Cincinnati tournament, which is open to some parts of the public. Because they have like laws that there have to be a certain number of bathrooms for whatever the capacity of the stadium is. But so, but it's near like a press conference room, and so Novak Djokovic, I I walked in and there was just like family of like a dad and like two kids like in the men's room, like standing there awkwardly like holding their cameras, and I had no idea what was going on. And uh, and then I see Novak Djokovic come out of one of the stalls, 
and they ask him for his photo while like he's in the bathroom. I, and it was just weird. Yeah, I find that not okay. Just I found that ve- I found it very not okay. <laughs> I found it very not okay. And he was like he was like they were like watching I don't know, he was like looking at them like in the mirror while he was like washing his hands and like he could see what was going on. It was it was uncomfortable. Yep. But uh so, but yeah. NCR listeners, don't be those fans. Don't don't get don't you know, feel free to stalk players at tournaments, you know, but not in the bathroom. Yeah. Know your know your know your limits. Yeah, exactly. There are moments where sometimes you just gotta leave them be. Yes, pretty much. Let let them let flush in peace. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, so there was nothing like that that happened to U.S. Open. I think U.S. Open is a more of a fortress as it needs to be when it comes to that. Um, but there was a lot of good tennis. It's a terrible segue, but it's the best I can do. Courtney, what what was there one match from the tournament that will that will stand out to you? Let's like early match say before the final. Get to that. Um, before the finals, an early match. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, there's def- there's quite a few. I think to me, the, the match that that even with the final, um, that will kind of, I'll definitely take away, and, and it's a match that I would love to kind of stick the DVD, you know, back in and and. Uh, 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 rewatch it is the the Djokovic Del Potro uh, quarterfinal. Mm-hmm. I just found the level of tennis in that second set to be absolutely mind boggling, like in a laughable way. Um, yeah, the way that, that Djokovic was covering the court um, and just how good he you know he had to play for to take that set. And I think Doug Robson, who writes for USA Today, kind of put it perfectly when he said, you know, you're not going to see another set played so well like like from del potro and lose yeah no i mean i was i was watching that in person in the stadium which was pretty cool yeah, and uh and it was just like I, I think i tweeted something along these lines like i was so surprised every time del potro hit one of those forehands and the point didn't immediately end yeah like it was and it would happen like three four times a point right that was just like both of them playing like their A games, and the, the other two sets in that match weren't great, but that one that one set was was unbelievable. Yeah, that second set was unbelievable. It was, I mean, I will watch that set, you know, anytime if I'm bored, I'll pull up the highlights, watch the full set, uh, it to its conclusion. It was phenomenal. I mean, I think that obviously the Tipsarevich Ferrer match was was really really good. I think that that was probably the men's match of the tournament if you look at it from an objective perspective. Yeah. Um, you know, it was it was great tennis and it was five sets and it was it was great. I just um you know, that neither Ferrer nor Tsarevich play games that I particularly love whereas Djokovic and Del Potro do and so that The thing the thing the thing with Tsarevich Ferrer which I think didn't give it that same sort of hook for me as Del Potro Djokovic is that neither of those guys was really a threat to win the tournament. Right. Whereas both Djokovic and Del Potro were. I mean, if Del Potro had made it through that match, he probably would have beaten Ferrer. And then uh, he would have been in the final against Andy Murray, and that would have been a really cool final. Um, but, yeah. yeah. I mean, that that I mean, that match was longer, the scoreline was more intense, but it didn't have sort of the importance, because you really felt like whoever won that match was going to lose in the semis. Yeah, that, that's definitely a, probably the right read. I mean, I think that there was, now that I look back on it, there was kind of this sense, and I watched that match from first, first point to last, but there was this sense with, with Tipsarovic Ferrer that it felt like a five, like a best of five Masters match. Yeah, okay. You know, like, in terms of, like, it didn't really matter. Like, even, like, the best Masters tournament 
match that you get, even if it's a get between some combination of the big four, there is kind of this in the back of your mind that's like, but it doesn't really matter. It's just a right. tournament. Like, you know, and that's kind of where I think psychologically I was with the Tipsarvich Ferrer match. And, you know, it, that, that makes it tough. I mean, I think that with Del Potro, even with Berdich, like, you know, certain players, uh, they do have that aura of, well, if they pull off this upset, they could, you know, the cards could align to where they could make a run at this. Uh, but with Ferrer and Tipsarvich, I just really didn't see that happening. <laughs> and so it was kind yeah. of waiting in a way. That's, that's the state of the ATP. I mean... Basically, there are the, the, the cans and the cannots in some ways. And the, the cans really are only four players. Maybe maybe five, including Del Potro. Yep. Um, six, or, or I guess even then, like, Sanga and Burditch wouldn't, you know, right. completely floor everybody if they did it. Yep. But, uh, but, yeah. Speaking of another can, I guess we can just move through the men's tournament now. Um, one person who hadn't, but now has... Is uh, Andy Murray. Andy Murray! Who has had quite a nice little summer making the Wimbledon final, doing the Wimbledon, uh, sorry, the Olympic gold thing, and then a silver and mixed, and now winning the US Open in a five set final over Novak Djokovic. Courtney, what were your thoughts on our newest Grand Slam, Andy Murray? Uh, no, I mean, I think that. that... It was hard because at the time I was doing the live blog and, and uh, of the match, which was almost five hours long. Yeah, me yeah, too. Yeah, that was a long time to be sitting. And, and the one thing, I don't know if this happens because I don't know what your style is, Ben, with the live blog. From the times, mm-hmm. But at least for me with SI, it is, um, it is kind of very game by game, point by point, like updates, filtering in some kind of general commentary as well as like filtering in like, um, you know, comments and things like that and trying to keep it light and funny. And because it almost feels quite granular insofar as I have to be able to, ex- I have to pay attention to every single point because I need to be able to explain what happened in that point should that point have been amazing. Like, you know, yeah. like, so you have to like pay attention to everything that you almost kind of, it, it detaches you from the rhythms of the match. And it uh, You see a whole lot of trees and not a lot of forest, basically. And so things are happening and the next thing you know, like, you're like, wait, how did Joe? Wait, Djokovic is up five two. When did this happen? You know, and uh, you know, yeah. and, and obviously that that you know it, it's difficult in that way. But I think that when it was all said and done, the overwhelming sense that I had was just I was just happy for Andy Murray, and um, just because you know, to me, he is kind of the the people's champion in a way that 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 Djokovic and Ferrer, uh, I'm sorry, Nadal. And Federer aren't. Um, he made himself a champion. He's a man-made champion. He's a guy who's like a scrawny little kid from Britain, who you know wasn't blessed with like kind of the innate talent of a Roger or kind of that competitive ability of Rafa that seems to come so naturally, or even some of the physical gifts that that Novak has. And he molded himself to be a champion. Um, he had to work so hard for it, you know, whether it was kind of saying, you know what, Britain doesn't have the resources that need to to be the best. I don't want to be top 50. I don't want to be top 100. I want to be number one and leaving at a young age to go train in Barcelona or, you know, realizing that he had to, you know, be as fit as the guy, as the other guys and, and, you know, busting his ass in the off season of what was it? 2008, maybe 
when he put on about 10 pounds of muscle, 10 to 15 pounds of muscle, yeah. came ripped. And then seeing, you know, his good buddy Novak Djokovic do, do in 2011 what he did and, and kind of bringing in an Ivan Lendl and, and uh, really, you know, kind of constantly doing what he needed to do to get there. I just, you know, it never came easy for Andy Murray. And so the fact that he finally got it, you got to tip your cap and, and just really be pleased for the dude. And he did, and the word he used in some ways when he talked about his winning was relief mm-hmm. in a lot of ways because there was so much pressure on him, not just from the British media, I mean, well, a lot from the British media, but also from himself. I mean, he just, he really, really, you know, I mean, it's been talked about a little bit, but he went out after the final to celebrate and had like one soda. I mean, the guy just, like, does not let himself uh, stray from what he needs to do. I mean, he's just lived his life with such unbelievable determination and focus. And, uh, which is, I mean, might sound like, oh, well, all tennis players have that. But he sort of had a more, he did it with more sort of, um, I don't know, need. Or maybe, I don't know, need or, he, it hadn't worked for him yet, basically. Yeah. It's different than somebody like Federer who, you know, is on some routine or something, but has already won. I mean, he really, really, the hunger was like nobody else had. Right. He, he sacrificed so much. And I think that you see that whenever he talks, especially about his team. Yeah. You know, he's, he brings us up a lot in press conferences that, like, people, nobody sees the amount of suffering he goes through except for his the guys in his team and maybe Kim and maybe Judy. But, um you know, to everyone else, it's like, oh, he just kind of goes through the motions and whatever. But those are the guys that have been with him who have seen how much he's had to sacrifice and how much he's had to work. And for it, for him to consistently kind of really put himself on the line and still come up short, you know, that had to be, you know, really, really gutting for the guy. It would be gutting for any normal human being. And I think that Andy Murray is a normal human being as much as he's kind of weird and gawky and... and Which makes him normal in some ways. I mean... He's not, you know, there's no sort of, Federer has sort of a, I don't know, supernatural, you know, otherworldliness, ethereal game or whatever. And Nadal is like, you know, like a, like a bull or whatnot. And Djokovic is, you know, like Gumby. But Murray's just, you know, Murray is awkward. a guy who doesn't smile much. He's an awkward guy. Yeah. You know, and I think it's, uh, I don't know, I don't know all, all those sorts of things. I mean, I, I really... I, I'm not going to lie, I teared up a little bit reading his press conference because just to hear him talk about how much he doubted himself, yeah, how much he didn't, he wasn't sure if this was going to happen. And Tom Parada uh, uh, of the Wall Street Journal just uh, put up a post um, online um, based off of quotes from, from the, the small interview that the champions usually do um, the day after the final today. And which for which for Andy Murray was held at the British consulate in Manhattan. Yeah, I think I was at Sam Stozer's last year, and it was at like a J.P. Morgan conference room. <laughs> oh, not um, the same. Not the same. But uh, but yeah, no. I mean, he he spent a lot of the time Andy Murray saying the same thing, just like you know he he wasn't sure if it was going to happen, and that in you know when you're young, you think that it's obviously going to happen. It's just a matter of time, and then yeah. there comes a point, the tipping point where it flips and and he says Andy Murray says that he had almost begun started to prepare himself for the disappointment of never winning a slam final through his career 
And once, and having read that quote, if you actually go through and read some of Murray's uh, press conferences within the last year, you actually do see that in his press conferences where he gets a little bit more defensive and says, you know, uh, even if he started, he starts to say, even if I don't win a slam, like my career is still pretty darn good, you know, like, yeah, you know, kind of saying those sorts of things. So it was clearly on his mind. So all those frailties, all those weaknesses, you know, you really, for him to come through it, even mid-match, to almost be the first guy to first five slam finals. Um, he almost with, was the first one to blow a two-set lead in uh, about eight years. Yeah, yeah. Um, so all those sorts of things, you know, you, you have to really, you have to really respect what he's able to. Yeah, and uh, and the thing is, he didn't have the hardest road in the world, but he did have to play Djokovic in the first in the first uh, and it's in it to win this. Djokovic, a guy who had won five Grand Slams previously. I thought it was interesting that Murray pointed out and that he was, you know, very aware of this fact that um, when Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic each won their first slams, they each did it by beating somebody who'd never won a slam before. Uh, Federer beat Philippoussis in the 03 Wimbledon final. Nadal beat Mariano Puerta in his first Grand Slam final. And Djokovic beat Sanga in Australia. And, uh, yeah, Murray had to, every time he got there, he played somebody who was in that top three. And he finally broke through one of them. So, I mean, if that was the thing with Murray. If he kept putting himself in these finals, eventually he was going to win one. But that's much, much easier said than done. Absolutely. I mean, a lot has to go your way. And I think that, generally speaking, I think people thought that for Andy Murray to win a slam, that things would have to break his way, that the yeah. draw would have to open up in some in some way. And it did. It did. Um, it absolutely did. But, you know, and, and again, I think that that's kind of one of the things that I thought was, was quite great about the final and the way that Andy Murray won it was it was it wasn't just a three set romp because Novak was tired from playing a Sunday match and yeah. the came and Andy was better playing in the wind and Novak sucked. And therefore, Andy won in three sets, having not having to face. That's what Rock. it looked like it was going to be when it was for love in this in the second set. It looked like that's that what we we're going to get. We we're going to get. And I remember thinking at the time. You know, oh, like I feel actually for the guy this way, and he's gonna get knocked for it. Yeah, there's gonna be a, a very faint asterisk next to his, you know, his maiden slam, and so for him to kind of show the mental fortitude and the physicality to be able to outlast Novak, to be able to bounce back from being on the brink of blowing a two-set lead, um, it, it's kind of a backwards way to kind of think about it because you're kind of like same time he should have never blown that two set lead right but um you know sometimes it just has to be the way that it was and you know uh it reminded me a lot of of kind of stozer's win over serena last year where just the win is one thing but the way that they did it really i think proved their champion's medal with stozer doing it kind of so easily in a lot of ways yeah uh, over serena under, yeah. under some pretty weird circumstances with everything that happened in that final. Special circumstances. Um, and then for, for Murray to bounce back from, from really being on the brink of what would have been a horrendous British choke. That would have been, that would have been just, that would have been unbelievably awful for everyone <laughs> involved. If, if, or not Djokovic, obviously, but for, for Murray's whole camp, for the British media, who were, who were, let's say, um, not hiding their, satisfaction at Murray winning. I, <laughs> we can put it also, that way. 
not hiding their panic when it looked like Murray was not going to win. I did not see them, actually. I was I was stuck to my TV, so I did not get a chance to, you know, look at their faces as the fourth set slipped away or anything. But uh, I'm sure that they would have been quite uh, quite blanched. Yes. With fear. Yes. So, so yeah. So I do, I do think that the having the extra day, however, did help Murray in the fifth yes. set. I mean, that's where it really, that's where Djokovic really seemed to not be the same. I think the big thing for, I think Djokovic, two parts of that fifth set. Djokovic probably thought he had the match completely in his control. And then, which was fair because he had won two sets and Murray is not somebody with a history of winning these kind of matches. And so he thought he was in control. And then as soon as, uh, as soon as Murray broke to open the fifth, that really rattled Djokovic completely. Um, And then also he had, less 24 hours more rest Murray did than Djokovic because of some rather ridiculous scheduling on Saturday um, where they basically, there was a severe weather coming into New York area and they knew they were only have a limited window to play. And instead of putting Djokovic Ferrer on Armstrong so they could play both matches simultaneously, they decided to wait for some reason. And, uh, the Murray-Burdich match went about four hours or so. And then uh, they put Djokovic on, and he got to play seven games, and then they evacuated the stadium because of tornado threat. And it just all seemed very, very poorly handled, in my opinion. Absolutely. Totally. It, it caused the Monday final, which um, is uh, it's the fifth year in a row it's happened. But, I mean, it's annoying for people who were there covering the tournament A. I mean, just like logistically, like, I had to book another hotel night. Um, I would have had to. I, uh, I, all these fans that came in out of town, a lot of them probably booked flights home on Monday, I'm guessing. The stadium was empty or it's during a work day, so a lot of people can't see it if they have tickets and work and have a real job in, in New York City. Um, a lot of people who were living on, who were just working in America couldn't see it at all because it's during the work day. On the West Coast, it's at 1 p.m. It's a 1 p.m. weekday final. And it's, I will- just, it's just not fan-friendly at all. I will add that because uh, during the live blog, this came up quite a bit, is that a lot of CBS affiliates didn't even bother carrying it. Yeah. It wasn't even an instance where CBS moved it, just basically ported it over to Monday, and it was what it was. I mean, there were a lot of angry people in major markets, like uh, Miami, maybe somewhere. Baltimore, Baltimore, I know, didn't show it. Or Maine, a lot of places up on the East Coast. Um, a few, I think Omaha maybe in, in Nebraska, um, but it wasn't being shown everywhere. And, you know, one of the, probably the, the most justified complaint that I remember seeing was, you know, from people saying, I've followed this event religiously for the past two weeks and you're telling me I can't watch the final. Yeah. That's incredible. It's unbelievable. I mean, and just sort of the, the avoidability of this and not even, not even talking about roof. I mean, roof is a whole nother issue. I don't even really think a roof is 100% necessary, to be honest, because this tournament has survived with, for decades without a roof. They can keep, they can, they can do it if they really want to. But yeah, 32 mm-hmm. years without without needing a Monday final or something like that. Yeah. And then just just we've just had a really rough five years. Yeah, it's, it's been a rough stretch. I mean, they've gotten a lot of days where it rains all day on Saturday. There's nothing you can do about that. But this was this was a case where they did have an opening of about five and a half hours on Saturday. And they knew that. They knew what the weather was going to be. And they chose not to play both at the same time. And Ferrer 
was very evasive when asked about it afterwards. If he really, if he'd wanted to play an Armstrong, he declined to talk about it. Um, Djokovic was a little less evasive, but still didn't make it clear that he said he demanded to play on Armstrong or anything. Um, and but he said that he did not like the Super Saturday schedule just because of the quick turnaround, which they're getting rid of next year, which is good because you just can't play back to back days best of five. It doesn't work in this modern era. But do we know if they're getting rid of Super Saturday or they're just adding a date? They're adding a. They're they're getting they're getting rid of the back to back back to back semis finals, men could, and women. Right, but my understanding is that could mean that they would just schedule a permanent Monday final. Yeah, which I wouldn't mind that much. I mean. Just if, if it's if it's in the plans, okay, whatever. Yeah. I don't know. I don't think it's necessary, but I think doing it on the sort of, uh, I guess, what the French timetable. I don't see why they can't do that. No, but here's the ridiculous thing, though, and I I don't want to interrupt you, but I'm just going to throw this out there. Go, ahead, go for it. The U.S. Open spreads the first three rounds of the men's tournament on, or the first round of the men's tournament across three days, as opposed mm-hmm. to two days like every other slam. So on. So you're already spreading those those guys out and creating some sort of competitive advantage, disadvantage for who gets scheduled when. Because the person who gets scheduled to play their first match on Wednesday is going to play their seven matches in two fewer days. That's true. Than the guy who gets scheduled on Monday, right? That's true. So, and you're talking best of five, like, and you're talking the last slam of the season. Like those sorts of decisions and those those time frames really do matter. Now, yeah. so you have those first three days. And then on top of that, you're going to go ahead and tack on like a Monday final, assuming that that's what they do, which they might not do. They might try and, you know, they might obliterate Super Super Saturday and do finally the way that it should be, which is men's semifinals on Friday, you know, the Thursday to Saturday women, the Friday to, to Sunday men. But they need, but in order to do that, they have to shrink the first three rounds, the first, the first round, sorry, the first three days. They just can't keep doing that. And, um. Or, or they can do the French way and start on the first Sunday. And they could try and do that, but but already the players have balked at that. I remember Andy Murray last year saying that, you know, basically if you do that, then you're asking for the the players to play an extra day to basically work an extra day. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to work the players an extra day, then you should pay them more, which goes into obviously ridiculous questions about prize money. But um, yeah. But I mean, the logic—the logic doesn't offend me. <laughs> That's fair. That kind of mentality. Yeah. No, I mean, I just think that the way in this particular case, um, yeah, there was just no excuse for them not to be simultaneous. Also, they were talking, and I, it, it was very unclear, really, what the drive. There was a lot of conflicting reports about who exactly didn't want them to play on Armstrong. That was the thing. Yeah. CB. Some people blame CBS. But then the CBS commentators kept criticizing the decision. And then, uh, and the other thing is, I just, I mean, I like tennis, obviously. But I don't think that Djokovic Ferrer would have gotten that tremendous ratings. Nope. No, not at all. Were nope. they really, like, holding out for that? Not on a day that has football. Yeah. No. So, oh, I I'm think sorry. That, yeah. It's college football on a Saturday. I mean, it's not like you're going up against nothing. I don't know. I just didn't, I just did not understand what what the motivation was. I heard some people say that when they did this last time in 08 and they had the Nadal Murray semi get moved to Armstrong, there was apparently like a stampede from Ash to Armstrong, people who wanted to see that match. Um, 
but I don't think that Djokovic Ferrer has quite the same draw as Nadal Murray. Yeah, I had heard the same sort of thing. I think that it was Sandy Harwit, who's a freelance journalist who writes for ESPN, writes for a number of different outlets. She had tweeted that the reason why the match wasn't moved is because there wasn't any security at Armstrong uh. to, to deal with the crowds, which goes a little bit towards your point that you just made, Ben. Um, so whether it was there was no security or there wasn't enough security, I don't know. But that's what she said. Uh, uh, I think Matt Cronin said that he had heard from USTA that it was because of TV or because of the, of the players, and mm-hmm. speculated that it was Ferrer that was the driver as to to not wanting to play on Ash, which I thought was weird. Um, and then uh, uh, I think Renee Stubbs uh, said that it wasn't. The players and it was definitely wasn't TV that 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 TV wanted it on. Yeah, who knows? Everybody's got their own, you know. Somebody knows. Somebody out there knows. Somebody definitely knows. But not us. And and uh, the tournament director David Brewer held a brief press conference to explain things, and was asked, um, you know, because when they this was after the end of play Saturday, while the tornado warnings were coming in. Um, say, someone said, uh, you know, uh, you guys had a chance to avoid a Monday final here, but you didn't. Um, did Are you guys just comfortable with Monday finals now or something? Basically was the tone of the question. He was like, no, we hate the Monday final. Really? Do you? With this behavior? I mean, if you knew this was a possibility, you could have brought in the security guards from whatever agency you're using. Yeah. It could have been done. No, it's uh, too many of these decisions by the USTA with respect to scheduling are so transparent in their kind of, you know, like earlier, in the, a couple of rounds before, the, the suspension and postponement of the Sharapova-Bartoli match when they could have resumed play. But it yeah, was- that, was, that was that I did not like at all. I found like more offensive honestly to me personally that one was bad I mean how do you start how do you cancel another match to start how do you cancel one match to start another right so so what happened was Bartoli Sharapova gets going obviously Bartoli if everybody remembers was rolling uh over for love for love rain comes match suspended uh all of a sudden match postponed match postponed to the next day Okay, well, then that must mean that the rest of play is washed out. No. So that night, Roddick was supposed to play Del Potro in the night session, mm-hmm. and held that match and continued to try and play that match, you know, which it did start, but it did eventually get rained out before whatever the, the time frame upon which they wouldn't have to issue new tickets or refunds or whatever. But it was just ridiculous because, you know, you're, you're, you're really altering. altering not just, you know, Sharapova Bartoli, but you're altering Del Potro Roddick in terms right. of the athlete's ability to compete at their best level. You take yeah. the court, you expect to finish the match unless the rain comes and washes it out and it's an act of God. But you aren't shouldn't be told, especially the women, should not be told, sorry, we need to get this guy's match in. Come on. Yeah. Yeah, I've never seen anything like that where they cancel one match to put on to start another. And so essentially, they had, going into the next day, they had two matches that were on the same court that needed to be resumed, which I've never seen before. Right. That's a good point. So, so yeah. So that was that was a bit ridiculous. Um, so we can segue several ways with that. Why don't we segue to Roddick? Um, 
that match that we talked about wound up being his last of the tournament um, when it did resume. What did you think? What we haven't talked since Roddick announced his retirement. Um, what did you think of the whole whole thing as as it played out? Roddick's final farewell. Well, I mean, I really don't think that that Andy could have wanted or, or could have written it any better. Mm-hmm. You know, he he played his first match. He he says that first match. That's when he knew that that he done. Uh, called the press conference, announced that this would be his last tournament. Yeah. Um, goes out and beats Tomic. Um, goes out and plays a really, really entertaining match against Fabio Fognini. Who is really, really entertaining. It's inherently entertaining. I mean, when he sits and breathes, he's just, oh my God, that guy. <laughs> ben and I have had lots of conversations about Fabio Fognoni. Um, so we, uh, we're kind of on the same page on this one. But yeah. It was a really entertaining match. He's like, he's like a cartoon character, basically. He is. And uh, so, you know, that was great. And then fourth, you know, so he makes the fourth round and he loses to a guy that you can't hate. No, no. He loses to this guy who's a younger, bigger game. He's playing well. And he gave him a decent fight. I mean, he went four sets. He took the first set um, in a tie break. And then he played adequately, but ultimately showed that he just wasn't going to be able to really stay competitive at this level for a while. And for all of the stuff, I never once heard anybody say, really, oh, Andy Roddick should have hung around longer. Right. Oh, he should have tried more. No. I mean, nobody was saying that. Maybe some people sarcastically when he, like, played well against Tomic or something. But said, like, I wish he would have played like this. Yeah. He was hitting his forehand. He was playing so aggressively. It was so great to see. I mean, I... I you know, it was nice to see Andy play those two matches, but, you know, much like I think Kim Kleister's retirement and how she went out, I think Andy went out the same way, which was, you know, they they, they showed that they couldn't keep going. Yeah. Uh, to everyone and also to themselves, I think. And, you know, I think that in that way, there's peace. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, right? it would have been cool if they had been able to finish that match at night and he had gotten to go out in prime time instead of, you know... I don't know, like 3 p.m. on a weekday when all these people were probably watching. But I liked your tweet about that, that that was almost, that was a perfect tribute to Roddick. Yeah. It, w- it was, you know, it was not a dream ending, but the guy is not, has not been about, you know, fairytale endings in his career. Right. Been about things not quite going his way, but, you know, keeping his held, head held high all the same. And what was surprising, I mean, if you had asked me at the beginning of this year who will retire this year, Roddick would have been one of my first answers. Um... But um, what was weird about this is the timing, like, coming between the first and second rounds of the tournament. That's what sort of blindsided people, I think. Yeah, what was the reaction? I mean, what was it like in the press room on that day? It was crazy because they announced, um, they just, you know, make announcements over the loudspeaker about people coming to press. Um, and they announced Roddick, like, Andy Roddick will be in interview room one at six o'clock. Roddick, room one, six o'clock. And it was weird because he hadn't played that day. And so my immediate first thought that he was pulling out of the tournament. That's one thing that happens, that, you know, people get injuries and pull out the tournaments, and that's usually how that goes, if it's a big, big player. Um, although sometimes they might have preceded that with uh, anti-rotic withdrawals from his tournament. We'll be impressed okay. at that point. Um, then there was a lot of speculation going on that it was a birthday celebration for him, 
which is really weird looking back in retrospect to what actually happened. It's like, oh, it's going to be cake. It'll be fun. You know, it's his 30th birthday. He's want to have some cake with the media guys. He loves the media. Like, okay, thanks, Andy. So you kind of saw which ex- reporters were getting really excited for cake, which is funny. Um, I was sadly not one of them because I had to write something else. Um, but uh, so a Patrick bit of an article kept me from cake in my, mind, in my mind. Um, I- yeah. <laughs> um, so then it, Roddick sat down or about like one minute before it happened, it was made official or like the US Open Twitter like tweeted like about to announce his retirement, blah, blah, blah. He sat down and said, I need the short and sweet. Uh, this is my last tournament. And yeah, so there it was. And he was, you know, and I think it was interesting. He said that he felt more pressure in some ways impressed at this tournament than on the court because he felt like expectations were higher for him in front of a microphone with a racket. I mean, one of the nice things about the whole Roddick thing and the way that it played out, and this is something that I kind of, I miss a little bit with, with Kleister's um, in the way her U.S. Open played out, was that it was just fun to see Andy Roddick having fun out there. Yeah. You know, like he was smiling he was whooping up the crowd. He was, I mean, it, you know, uh, he's never been my favorite player to watch play tennis. Yeah. Um, Stock brand of tennis, at least the brand that he kind of cobbled together was, was never, you know, something I tuned in for. Um, it got weird. His brand of tennis by the end of his career, was pretty weird. It felt like he was, you know, he was zigging when he should have been zagging. And, and he, you know, when you told him he had power, he hit, it just was weird. I, it was almost like he wanted to prove, like, that he could be something he wasn't when he was on court. Like, he never took the most, except for, like, when he first started working with Stefanki, which is when he made the Wimbledon 09 final. Um, he just was, like, more into, like, outworking people than winning easy or something. And I don't know. It could be weird to watch. He wanting to prove that he was multidimensional when, in actuality, I mean... If you had one dimension and it works for you, why not go with that? I mean, this is not second guessing. At the end of the day, the guy had like a tremendous career. Oh, yeah. years Solid. But it was just a bit of a reminder, you know, in those matches when he was actually playing offensively and aggressively and, and really just his, his forehand and yeah. over his backhand and not just slicing everything back. It was great. I mean, it was so great to watch. Um, Chris Clary, who's one of the other people who's there writing for the New York Times, was talking about the first time he ever watched Roddick was at a Davis Cup tie, actually, in Switzerland or something. And he was an alternate playing a dead rubber. And he said he'd never seen anybody hit a uh, forehand like that, that hard. And if you were to tell somebody who just got into tennis in the last five years yeah, that, they'd, they'd look at you like you were crazy. Yeah, because he doesn't hit it hard really at all anymore. doesn't. No. So, uh... So yeah, but uh, but yeah, it was just really nice to see him, just really celebratory on court, and, and to see the crowd give him that, you know, that those cheers and and all that, and I just really felt like Kim's the way that Kim kind of rode off into the sunset. It was a little bit more kind of not sad, but just like meh. Well, Kim, Kim, Kim had a very well. We can use this to sort of broad probably a transition to the women, I guess, because we haven't really talked about them yet. Um, Kim, first of all, her retirement was long preordained. She talked about, um, she made this, she, I think it was clear either early this year or late last year that this would be her last tournament. And it didn't seem, so she was sort of slowly pulling into the station instead of suddenly, you know, 
pulling ripcord the way Roddick did mid tournament, you know, giving it everything to the last drop. There was some sense with Kleisters, I think, that she had been, you know, sort of easing off the gas a little bit in twenty twelve is probably fair to say. Sure. And uh, just because with all the things in her life, the uh ability to be a full tunnel vision one dimensional tennis player just wasn't there for her. I mean, she has a family, she's a daughter, she wants to get more kids, et cetera, et cetera. Um and she uh, got a very tough draw at the beginning. I forget who she played first round. Do you remember who she played first round? Oh, I remember. It. Oh, Victoria Duval. She played Victoria Duval first round. Who was this, who was this little <laughs> squeaky American girl who I would do an impression of, but I don't really want people hearing that. I have done it before this week, and it was, I think, very accurate. But I see this with all the love in the world, Victoria Duval. Like you are just you, you just won everyone over. She was yeah. just absolutely charming. She really was. And uh, she did well in the girls' uh, singles, too. I think she made semis, I want to say, in the, in the junior draw. Um, but she, So Kleisters beat her in a night session. And then the next round, Kleisters was set to get, got Laura Robson. And if she won that match, she was going to get Lena. And if she won that match, she was going to get Sam Stoser. If she won that match, she was going to get Azarenka. I mean, she got a nightmare, nightmare exit draw. Whereas Roddick really I, did not. That bracket was r- brutal for that everybody. Was really brutal. Um so Kleisters goes into the second round match with Laura Robson, who has pushed players before. Um, never really gotten a huge win like that, though. Um, she'd taken Sharapova a couple tie breaks and stuff, um, famously at Wimbledon. And uh, at Wimbledon, the Olympics at Wimbledon, rather. And, but at the All England Club. Yes, at the All England Club. And then Laura Robson came out, got down, I think, 5-2 in the first set. Kleisters had a lead. And then Robson just sort of clicked with all the forehand easy power and serving that everyone who's been watching her has admired for so long and came out and won in uh, two tie breaks, long story short. And uh, it was, uh, and Kleisters was out at the hands of an 18 year old who had never made the third round of a grand slam before. So it was interesting. It's interesting exit for her. And, but she really just seemed very ready to go. Yeah. That, that's the thing. I mean, I think that you could say that about both her and Roddick is that they were done. Yeah, they had made up their minds, and, and you know, I mean, I think with Kim, maybe in a couple of podcasts, I don't, I can't. Sometimes I can't remember if the conversations we've had have been recorded and posted online, or were just conversations that we've had at like Mason's Applebee's. Yeah, um, but I remember talking to you a little bit about how Kim just kind of felt. Maybe this was right before the Olympics. Like she was no longer a story because the story had already been written. We we had already known that you know, Kim's going to retire, and that was pretty much it. And um, and she did have, I do think she had it in her to, I mean, it, she could have broken through and made a big run at one of these last tournaments, be it Wimbledon, Olympics, or U.S. Open. Um, she made quarters of Olympics. She made the semis of Australian this year, which yeah. is hard to, hard to fathom sort of when you think of, you know, how little she played this year. She was two match. She was in a third set against Azarenka. She gets into that final. She could have well beaten Sharapova in that final. Um, she could have won a Grand Slam this year, and, and she didn't. Uh, she didn't. And now then she sort of just you know faded off. Got absolutely crushed by Kerber Wimbledon, and uh, then lost to Laura Robson. But Laura Robson backed that up with a win in the next round over Lina in three sets, and then played pretty tough against. Uh, against Sam Stoser, defending champ in the fourth round. So Laura Robson really was, in a lot of ways, the, ter- the story of the first week of this tournament on the women's side. 
That's what I think. I mean, if you take um, if you take the retirements out of it, you know, just I mean, I think Andy Murray. I'm sorry, Andy Roddick definitely hijacked a lot of headlines. Yeah, announcement in the first week. Take out the fact that once Robson had beaten Kleister, the story was eighty percent Kleister is twenty percent Robson. Mm-hmm. So for her to back it up and play Lena the way that she did, and Lina, he's playing very well, by the way. And then even Stozer. I mean, Stozer. I think Laura probably game. She yeah. kind of it was a bit beta Laura as opposed to like U.S. Open Laura. Um, just a bit more uh, too aggressive and going for shots she had no business going for, but. Um, but I think that the common thread throughout those really big three matches is that just her resiliency, which is something that she's not really been known for. So obviously her movement was really, really great, but you win two tiebreaker sets off of Kleister's having come back from two, five down in the first set. You lose a very tight second set to Lee Na and then come back and run away with the third set. Um, yeah. and then with Stozer, she lost, she saved, what was it? Eight. I think match points. Yeah, seven or eight. Seven or eight before finally succumbing. So, and that was with you know not playing as well as she had been the week before. So, you know, a lot, lot to like. I mean, I think we talked about her maybe in the last podcast or the podcast before, but you know, you kind of want to be cautious about the young kids. You mm-hmm. don't, you don't want to Donald Young things. <laughs> no. Um, and put too much pressure on. But but this was a tournament where everything clicked, and I think that it was. It was quite nice to be able to see her, and I think just for her as well to see for her to be able to see herself competing that well, yeah, knowing that that level was there. Um, but I know that that you and Laura got along quite well, Ben. From, they did from the press conference hijinks. Yes, well, they were they were you know being in an open presser and getting to ask whatever you want is part of what makes being in the media beautiful. As and Ben, because Ben, I will have to say this: Ben is so good with asking questions. I am generally pretty silent. Like, I am, like, unless it gets really awkwardly quiet and it's a women's presser where I feel like you want to create a, pre- a transcript for people to hopefully write about women's tennis, generally keep my mouth shut. But Ben, always good with the question and very creative. I have to, I have to tip my cap. Well, thank him. you. Thank you, Courtney. Um, no and, Laura, and I had done a one-on-one interview with Laura where we were discussing our mutual um, admiration for the... British uh, X Factor produced boy band uh, One Direction and going over our relative favorite tracks. She knew a lot more. I, I'll be honest, she was really outpaced me in the One Direction knowledge. It wasn't even close. But I did tell her that I would try to work in a, a title to one of my questions or, a, you know, a One Direction reference. And so I did after she beat. Uh, it was coming. I did after I beat, after she beat Lena. She knew it was coming. And I asked something you know, about how this was the first time she ever got into a slam directly, that her ranking qualified her without having to go through college or getting a wild card or anything. And asked if, you know, having this, that one thing, that sense of belonging or something made a difference for her. And she sort of recognized the, what, what was a relatively subtle One Direction reference in there? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, if you weren't looking, you weren't looking for it, you never would have really noticed it. Um, and she uh, just, she just lost it. So it was sort of it was sort of awkward for for all involved in the room. I got, people were staring at me, wondering what the hell was going on. But she was like yeah. she was like gasping for air. And unfortunately, that yeah. part got cut out of the vid, uh, uh, interview video because U.S. Open did not do a good job of recognizing what were the great press moments and highlighting them in terms of their online stuff. Totally agree. But oh well. But you got your moment in later. Yes, she won. Well, she she lost to 
uh, Soser. I got I made some other reference. Um, forget what that one was. But um, she uh, she left. She she should have seen it coming once again. Didn't seem to. And uh, yeah. No, I've seen the video, and once you started asking your question, she did kind of have this like alert look on her face. Yeah, but still, but still, she she still she was you know. She still lost it. She still lost, and it's which is so. And usually she's so like unflappable and British and you know, cool and witty and stuff. But the One Direction is her Achilles heel, clearly. Yeah. So. So yeah, so that one was on the video if you want to see it. But know that the first one was like 20 times more in terms of her reaction. And the transcript really doesn't do it justice. Um, yeah, so anyway, that was Laura Robson. She, yeah, she was... She's she British was def- number one coming next week. Yeah, she was definitely the, 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 the top story of the first week. And yeah, like as you had mentioned, she's, she's um, going to be the British number one starting uh, next week, which is pretty crazy. And... Uh, you know, she has nowhere to go but up for the next year. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was really her best result um, by, by far. So, uh, you know, she she's maybe that Zelshko thing is actually going to work out. Maybe those two crazy kids are actually going to figure it out. They just might make it. Um, so the story, Flora was the story of the first week. Unbelievably, I don't think we have yet said the name Serena Williams on this show. Serena Williams is your 2012 U.S. Open champion, and she won a really great final against Victoria Azarenka, uh, 7-5 in the third. Azarenka served for the title at 5-4. Williams broke, and uh, Serena now has 15 Grand Slams and five U.S. Opens, which is pretty good. Pretty good. What were, Or was it four U.S. Opens? Hold on. Let me count. Four. This is her fourth U.S. Open, I think. So, uh, Courtney, what do you make of... Serena's second straight slam title and that whole that whole run. Well, I mean it's uh it's Serena. You know, I mean I think that I think that if you ask most people everybody will agree that at her best she is she's you know better than everyone else but you know and she really didn't have to work very hard to get to the final this Not time. At all. Of, um it wasn't like Wimbledon where she really had to struggle uh to get there. Because she uh, was on her A game and Wimbledon she was not. Right, right. No, she was she was great through most of this, and so for me, you know, whether this is fair or not, to me, the story from the women's side is really more Vika than Serena, um, and what Azarenka was able to do in in that final. And that's not to say that Azarenka outplayed Serena. I think that we can all agree that that Serena played, you know, a subpar match on the whole. She played. It was a bad match for her. In the second set, she just, you know, she double faulted that first game away and then just never really got her head out of it and then fell a, a breakdown in the third and still just really seemed to be stuck in like third gear, you know, like couldn't really rev it up. Um, and Azarenka, to her credit, and, and this is something that I really truly do give her credit for because I think that a lot of players in that situation, they, they cower a bit. Yeah. Serena's whatever it is her aura her intimidation her power whatever it is and they don't take advantage of these moments when Serena doesn't play her best and Victoria did and and that was notable and that's something you know it's very rare that you kind of see a player and you're like oh I can't wait for you to play Serena again it really it really was and what I think is note and I sort of asked her something about this after she lost um basically just like she played some of her best tennis 
ever of her career in the two Grand Slam finals she played this year. Yep. Both against in both against players who had won multiple Grand Slams before. And she is a relative newbie to these late stages of Grand Slams. Um, even though she's been around as a sort of a contender t- sort of person in women's tennis for a few years. Um, she absolutely blitzed Sharapova in Australia, and she played really, really well against Serena to make this match competitive, much less you know on the verge of winning on Sunday. And uh, it's 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 encouraging that there is a player out there who does get up for these finals and really brings out her best. It's the way it should be for everybody. Theoretically, hasn't always worked out that way. When you talk about you know uh, I don't know Safina Ivanovic, etc., people who just really have struggled in Grand Slam finals. Early Kleisters, Zvonareva, so on and so on. Azarenka seems to be made from sort of a, a different metal than that. And uh, I think that this, if, assuming they both stay healthy, hopefully we get a few more of these Azarenka-Serena big matches at slams, because this one was very, very entertaining. Right, it really was. And, and uh, you know, I really thought that the only player on the WTA that I actually looked forward to or enjoyed uh, for Serena to play was Petra. Mm-hmm. It was power for power, and it was the only player that could meet her match her for power. But I really, you know, after this after this match, and again, I mean, we're talking about this after their head to head record is ten to one now. Yeah, you know, I mean, Rika's only beaten her once, and that was in Miami when when Serena was on one leg. Yeah. So, you know, we're not even talking about something where it's like an even ish. I mean, Sharapova has a better record against Serena, and we all know that it's not a rivalry in the conventional sense of the term whatsoever. But, it, but it's a budding one. Hopefully, it's, hopefully. That, yeah, you, you need, a, I think you need two or three more matches to really see uh, what Azarenka can do here. And Azarenka and, needs and to win in one of those two or three. Exactly. So, you know, so it's something to look forward to. And I think that she really proved herself. It sounds like she was quite good in the press room, Ben. She was with, after. Not, yeah. I mean, she was, she was, Azarenka, um, and maybe the media makes too big a deal of this. I don't know. But Azarenka generally is not a very good quote. Not doesn't give the most interesting answers. Can be sort of um, can sort of just think a lot of questions. Seem to think they're stupid. Doesn't give them sort of a lot of uh, attention sometimes. Uh, but after she lost, Azarenka was great. I think some, certain players it just works out this way. Some players are better after wins. Some are better after losses. Um, I've heard uh, reporters who've been around a long time say of McEnroe, John McEnroe, that he was really not very useful in press after he won. But after he lost, he was like on a psychiatrist's couch, couch essentially, and just like would share everything and was great. And Azarenka maybe is sort of the same way. I don't know because after this, if you haven't seen her presser from her or her transcript anyway from the uh, from the final, you should because she just you know sort of pitch perfect, was honest, disappointed but encouraged. And it was a great match she played. I mean, maybe it'd be hard to to be bad and press after that kind of match, but it was a big step forward for her because she has definitely had some. Uh, I don't know, media engagement issues before, let's say. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that my comment, because I saw a lot of the <clears throat> tweets coming through about, about um, Vika, you know, really nailing her press conference after the loss, and, you know, the, the press had really taken her to task, I think, quite strongly in, in the, the week and a half before that. There was, you know, articles written, you know, in the New York Times, and you know, Sports Illustrated, you know, different articles that were written about kind of her inability to engage. So she really kind of came through, I think, in the final. My reaction, though, and, and it felt a bit cruel to tweet it at the time, so I never did, because um, obviously she had just lost a match. Mm-hmm. Like, 
you know, off-court stuff is judged the same way that on-court performance is, which is by consistency. So you can have your one-offs where you're really good. That's fair. But consistently bring it. Yeah, that's, that's fair. I do, I do think there is a, a general arc of improvement with her anyway, though. I think she's definitely getting better. Good. Um, but, I mean, yeah. And and I think I wrote about her in the New York Times. I think it might have been the article you're referencing there. And I think that, I mean, with her, it was more about, like, her... Because, really, it's not just the press. I mean, fans do not impress Azarenka. We're at enough tournaments around the world to see that stay empty for her almost wherever she plays. Just um, the crowd almost always roots for her opponent. I don't know if that's largely grunt motivated. I think it is more than we're willing to give it, you know... I think most people take grunting a lot more seriously than we do, especially more mm-hmm. casual fans. Um, really does bother them when you write an article about, I'm sure you get this, I've written articles about Azarenka or posts or live blogs or whatever, and or about Azarenka or Sharapova, and the comments will be about grunting. Yep. Even if I didn't bring that up. He'll be like, yep. I can't watch this anymore. There's so much grunting, blah, blah, blah. And even if you know people who watch enough tennis kind of are over it, a lot of fans are not. And so I do think that it has been a hurdle for her to be embraced or whatever. But I think this match will uh, will help. It was sort of in a little bit her Andy Murray Wimbledon moment. Not quite to that extent, but kind of close. Well, that's, I think that's probably true. I mean, I think that, um, you know, if you look back on her year, especially as, as somebody, and, and you've been there as well, Ben, who's been around her through through the year, is that it was just really odd to see her really almost be prickly when she was winning. Yeah. You know, she was 26 and now, and she was just demolishing the field. And I'll never forget that Indian Wells. Um, and even, you know, at the Australian Open as well, where she just it, it, it felt pointless to even go in and talk to her. And that's not because we're lazy. No. <laughs> you know, it's more because there was just nothing that she was going to give us that 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 um, was going to be useful. Yeah. And the press conference felt like... Um, she was on the offensive. Yeah. Like, it felt like she was just waiting to like put you in your place. Yeah. It was unpleasant and, a lot of times. It was just like, you know what? I, I'm a human being. I'd rather sit here and eat my sandwich than go in there and be in a horribly awkward like five-minute press conference. Yeah. Um, I, I just feel awkward about it. And, and I just, the sandwich is really tasty. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, so, so hopefully she's able to carry it through. Hopefully she remembers, you know, kind of, how important that is for her because her talent is undeniable in, in my opinion. I think that, um, I, 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 you know, her tennis is not what I like watching, but when I do watch her, I absolutely respect what she's been, what she's able to do on the court oh, yeah. and how she break down opponents. Yeah. And, um, she should be a bigger thing. It'd be good for, regardless of whether you like Victoria Azarenka or not, she can be good for women's tennis. There, she, it, just, she, she does need a little more polish or something, or just yes. not not even not even polish. I mean, doesn't need. To, I mean, if she wants to be, you know, like I wrote in the article, like more of you know, like a, a rebel, whatever, fine. But sort of figure out a way to make that more coherent. I guess I don't know. The charismatic kid. Yeah. You see that on the court. You see that. You know, but she just has to figure out how. To, I mean, Drew Lawrence wrote a pretty good piece on this, but she has to figure out how to translate that and she just never has learned how to yet so yeah. we'll see we'll and see she's, she's 20 what 22 23 22 yeah something like that so yeah she'll figure it out she got, i mean the game is there the game is it seems like a really reliable game too 
it's it's a, it's a relatively high margin game that she plays. So she should be built to last in tennis. So hopefully that hopefully her long stay keeps getting better. I agree. Um, and yeah, it was interesting that you point out that she was really at her worst, almost impressed during this win streak. Um, and maybe she, maybe she just is more. Um, I don't know. Even even earlier in the U.S. Open, when she was you know moving to the draw, she was better than she was first part of the year. So I don't know. Maybe just sort of she was sent had more sort of perspective now that she wasn't feeling invincible. I don't know what it was. But and also, but fair. also she didn't really have an answer for why she was winning so much. Was part of the frustration I think for some media having to write about her. Yeah, that was a very frustrating thing through the first quarter of the year. Is that you know I think that there was I wrote no explanation piece, for why she was winning. I wrote a piece first for SI. Um, kind of comparing her to Novak Djokovic, but my my conclusion was that she wasn't like Novak Djokovic from 2011, that she was on this amazing win streak, but whereas Novak really kind of had um, a narrative as to why it was happening, whether or not you want to attach it to Davis Cup, the gluten-free thing, experience, whatever it was, but he he kind of had these hooks that he would throw out there that that you could kind of take. Um, Azarenka just never let you create a narrative for her. Like you wanted to help her. You wanted to write. You wanted to get to know her, you know, not even just about writing, you know, a good story. It's just like, you felt like there was a wall there. And it was, you know, like I just remembered Indian Wells kind of asking her, you know, and literally, I mean, my question was, you know, Vika, you're one of the hardest working people on tour. Everybody knows that every time we were out there, we see you on the practice courts. And, but is there anything, that, that you've done, you know, between last year and this year that, that you can really look to as being, you know, a catalyst for kind of your success. And she literally stared me down. Just like, yeah. like she, you know, for a good, like 10 seconds, just like stared at me and then just completely brushed off my question. I was like, that's fine, but <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm trying to tell your story and you're not letting me do it. And it's frustrating. Yeah. So there you go. That's, that's basically everything on that i mean it is something we've talked about you know on and off air before i think with her it's just that it's uh it's tough and uh it can be tough writing about people when they don't when they're not as good with press and maybe that does seem like a very sort of inside baseball kind of thing for us to talk about but it does come through i think a lot of fan perceptions and on court also so anyway that's that Let's see other women's stories i guess we talked a lot about serena um let's let's go sort of through like the big name sharapova Made the semis, um, lost to Azarenka, tight match, is no longer engaged, nor is she pregnant. She had an interesting tournament, Sharapova. <laughs> what, what, did, what did you think of, uh, and she also came out with several adjective named candies along she the way. Did. So she was, she was a busy lady, even if she didn't make the final. Um, what did you make of, what, what, what will Maria Sharapova's 2012 US Open be remembered for most, do you think, Courtney? That she has a Victoria Azarenka problem. Yeah. That Azarenka is firmly ingrained in her head, and she's pissed about it. And she can't kind of exercise that demon. And, you know, I think that, obviously, I think that, that Serena is in her head. But I feel like with Sharapova, she she feels like that's okay. That, that at Serena's best, Serena is better than she is. And so she kind of is a bit more deferential in that way. But I feel like Maria genuinely believes that she, she can and should beat Vika. Yeah. And she doesn't on hard courts. And you saw that, you know, this is all kind of, you know, living room couch psychology of just watching this match. But you saw it 
so blatantly, at least in my opinion, Sherpa was up a set and a break in the semifinals of a slam. And she's castigating herself. She's slamming her racket on the ground after missing returns. She's just furious with herself. And you're up a set and a break. It's so unlike her. You know, that's so unlike her and just showed this level of insecurity that if I'm Azarenka, I'm like, well, first of all, I've played like crap through a set and a, through a set and a half. And that one over there still thinks that she's on the verge of losing. Yeah. I'm in this. And sure enough, I mean, Vika could have, should have probably won third set 6-1-6-2. But, you know, credit to, to Sharapova's fight that she was able to keep it as close as she did yeah. to lose, I think, 6-4. Azarenka had, uh, sorry, Sharapova had some marathon service games in that third set that she kept holding on to. And Azarenka was constantly holding it like 15. And it was just like, when will this eventually give? And Sharapova... You know, eventually at the end, blamed her loss on, or in the third, losing the third set anyway, on just not being able to make a dent on return. Which is weird that people, I mean, Azarenka's placement on serve has gotten much better, I think, recently. But uh, that serve is so attackable, nobody, it seems like it, not have, standing on the other side of it, but it seems like it should be more attackable than it is. And even like, it, even like Serena didn't even really do that well on return. I agree. There, there's something going on there that I would love to get to the bottom to, bottom of. And, and admittedly, I'm probably not the tennis brain that, that can do it on my own. Yeah. I think her but, placement, either her placement or like her, or it must be really tough to read or something because it, it doesn't break 100 very much and doesn't seem like it's really hitting the lines that much, her serve. So I'm not quite sure what's going on with it. Bartoli, when she beat Azarenka in Miami, um, clobbered the serve. Yes. But she, other than other than that, I haven't really seen anybody do that to her. But maybe you know, maybe Chabokova at the French. Here's the thing though. Marion Bartoli, smarter than all of us. That's true. Combined. Combined. Yeah. Like smarter than the world. So you, in order to so that's the thing, Ben. You have to have a one on one with Marion to figure this out. Yes. I did talk to Marion a bunch of termination. Marion had a very nice tournament and yeah. had things broken the other way, could have made the final, I think it's fair to say. If if she had beaten Sharapova, which was a great match, that Sharapova Bartoli quarter was great. It's phenomenal. It was really great. everything about it was pretty great. Um, because of the amuse bouche that was Bar- Marion beating Kvitova, and like zoning in a way that you haven't seen Marion play in like forever. Yeah, that was phenomenal. That was great, and then she carried that over to Sharapova at the beginning, and played really tough in the third set against her, and lost I think six four. Just a very, very high-quality match. If she beats Sharapova in that match, she gets Azarenka, who she's beaten on hard courts before this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she becomes a really weird opponent for Serena in the finals. So Levels. <laughs> that, that would have been that would have just been fun. So Marion Bartoli is a lot of fun to watch. If you're at a tournament and you have not seen Marion Bartoli play, just do yourself a favor and do it. And give her a fist, cheer for her because she will turn in your direction and give you a fist pump of appreciation. So, if you've never been to, if you've never seen Maria Bartoli play, at least go to a tournament and watch her practice. Oh, God. <laughs> because it makes, it's like scenes out of Fifty Shades of Grey. Uh, okay. It's crazy. She's like bound to a fence. It's nuts. But it's so entertaining. It's so good. Are you saying it. that? Are you saying that Fifty Shades of Grey is entertaining and good? Not going to say that I read it, even though that I did. Okay. But um, and I blame the rain delay in Birmingham because because of the rain, I downloaded them and I read all three. Oh wow! Yeah, no, I know. 
I know what happens in that set of books, and I'm a little embarrassed by it. Not like <laughs> just embarrassed that I read them. Yeah. It was so stupid. Anyways, um, but check out Bartoli. She's um, she's just fun. She is. She's, she's so intense, though. She takes herself so seriously, and she's so fun. But that's part. Yeah, that's part of the package, and she's just a fantastic interview. Yeah, she is. She's one of the best. One of my top five of like, if Marion Bartoli is gonna is one. Like to do press, I will run into the room and, and just have a chat with her because she's she's fantastic. Yeah, she and she has way better English than any other French person. Word. They, so they don't tend to be great at English. The French. I, I hate to break it to you guys, but Alize Gournay does not exactly wow us with the Queen's English. No, nor nor does uh, Rosano. Mm-hmm. Speaks almost no English. Um, Spain Spanish people also don't speak much English. The general rule, it's both from Spain and. Uh, Latin America, because there are so many people in tennis who speak Spanish that for them, learning English is not really a necessity. True. So, uh, so yeah. So that's that. Um, anyhow, uh, other stories on the women's side include, uh, should I mention Sarah Ronnie? Does she deserve being mentioned? Uh, she, she made the semis. She did beat Kerber, I will say. I was surprised by that. Kerber, I thought, was the one player who I sort of picked as most likely to beat Serena at this tournament. What was more surprising, Arani beating Kerber or Vinci beating Aga? Okay, Aga's been awful lately. Yeah, but Vinci. <laughs> <laughs> Explain your intonation on Vinci. Do we think that Vinci is someone who should be making quarterfinals of Grand Slams? Really? I can't. I mean, even Aga has a backhand. Yeah. Um, no, but I, I, I'm being a bit facetious, but. I do agree. I mean, I Aga was my pick uh, on Sports Illustrated as the the first top seed to go out, and uh, I don't think that I ended up being right, but I was pretty close. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, she was playing really not well at all coming into the U.S. Open, so she was right for the upset. But I really did not see that coming from Vinci, who, to be fair, won Dallas, but still, yeah, I was a bit surprised. No, that, that was surprising. Vinci is now a top two doubles player in the world. She did play that um, quarterfinal against uh, Irani in front of a few dozen people that um, that had, you know, them wearing matching outfits and stuff, and they're best friends. And we've seen them, you know, wandering around Melbourne together, get looking for ice cream and stuff, and at Mason Applebee's and whatnot. So they are re- they are really good friends. Um, lost a story in Melbourne. Hmm. So Ben and I, late one night in Melbourne, really wanted pasta. Mm-hmm. So we literally walked into this one pasta shop that was open at maybe like 10 or 11 o'clock at night in the second week. Uh-huh. Sat down, had some had some pasta, and <laughs> Ben sees a Ronnie and Vinci eating like gelato uh, walking past the window. And they like look inside to like the Italian place that we're eating at and literally like had major Italian stink eye and like... <laughs> This, 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 this is not pasta. Yeah. Yeah. So. It was fine. It was good Australian-Italian food. There you go. I mean, you can't really be too too picky when it comes to that, I guess. Comparing it to Rome. Yeah. I'm saying that, you know, they boiled, the, they boiled the spaghetti, they threw on some ragu, and it was quite tasty. It was it was perfect. I mean, who doesn't like pasta? Really. Anyway. Other, other, I feel like there's more on the side we're missing. Kerber, okay, Kerber lost to Ronnie. That was surprising. Kerber beat Venus. And it was a really, really good second round match that Venus probably should have won because I think she was up, wasn't she up 5 2 in the third? I confess I did not see. 
Oh, well, you you didn't even you didn't even hear Vivica then? No, the, all of it was because I was um, the reason that I'm not at the U.S. Open is because my sister got married, uh, mm-hmm. and and so two days before the marriage, there was a bacheloresque party that involved drinks and dinner and karaoke. Oh boy. That was the night of uh, Kerber and uh, Venus. So I probably a better time. Yeah. Yes, but uh, but Kerber Venus was was pretty high quality. Um, well, no, that's not true at all. It was entertaining. I mean, it got so- pretty high quality by the end, but it started off rough for Venus. First set was rough. Second set, she somehow won it. Third set was pretty high quality. So, yeah. Fair. And she's uh she she's gonna be around in 2013. I mean, she's not retiring. She'll have, uh, it'll be interesting to see what she can do, because the game is still there, and the desire seems to still be there. Just the consistency is not completely. And I think the Shogun stuff, from what I can tell, doesn't seem to be affecting her on court lately. Yeah, it's no. Just, it's just about the X's and O's with her. It's about, you know, her serve and stuff like that, because her serve has been kind of woeful lately. Very, very true. Yeah. No, 2013 is really shaping up to be an interesting year to me. It is. Because as much as I think, obviously, Serena is player of the year, unless something crazy happens at the World Tour Finals, but or during the fall, but or not the World Tour Finals, the WCA Championships. Um, you know, I, I feel like Petra's on the verge. I feel like Maria's still right there in it. Vika, Serena, Kerber's still doing her thing. Uh, Vika, Aga could come back to being competent. Exactly. It's, uh, I don't know, it should be interesting. Laura Robson's coming up, you know, also Lena. Lena, I mean, Lena could have her last year in 2013, maybe, but she's getting older. Yes, but I, I have to say that, that Robson beating Lena, as much as it was, like, very cool to see the 18-year-old do what she did, uh, was kind of a bummer. Because I really thought I had Lee Noss scheduled into the final. Against Serena? Yeah. That would have been a cool final. Yeah, and I just, I just, I really, I thought she was playing so well. And uh, so that was a bit disappointing to see her go out in the third round. Just a rough draw. That draw, that first quarter of the draw was just absolute craziness. Really the whole top half, I guess. And and, and let this be known about Lee Noss. She's had some pretty, excuse my French, shit draws. Yeah. She, she, you know, she drew Kim relatively early uh, in in at the Aussie Open. She would have drawn her relatively early here had had Laura not beaten Kim. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she's she's. It hasn't been easy. No. no, not at all. That's all for part one. Now go listen to part two of our post U.S. Open, no challenges remaining, spectacular. I don't know.